he left us a lasting legacy that some might take for granted today. Anyone, no matter who you were, what your background is, that you could be within easy walking distance of a park-like environment. Coming up, we'll hear how the designs of Frederick Law Olmsted transform cities across North America. The mountain trails in Italy offer more than a good hike. You can feel like you're out in the middle of nowhere and then 10 minutes later be in a really beautiful medieval village. Cassandra Overby updates us on your long-distance hiking options in Europe. Tourism in Egypt took a hit a few years ago, but seeing its ancient sites never gets old. I have been to the pyramids more than hundreds and hundreds of times. And believe me, each time I go and look at it, it's like the first time. A guide from Cairo tells us how a new museum at Giza promises to transform tourism in Egypt. Come along, it's Travel with Rick Steves. It's expected to bring a long-needed boost to tourism in Egypt. A new archaeological museum, said to be the world's largest, will display the treasures of antiquity from the pyramids in Giza when it opens later this year. Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, a tour guide from Cairo tells us what he's looking forward to for his country's tourism industry. And Cassandra Overby's back with the latest on her findings for historical walking trails across Europe. She tells us why a long-distance hike might be the best way to enjoy the spirit of the old world. It's tempting to take the public parks and green spaces in our cities for granted. But we owe a debt to Frederick Law Olmsted for insisting on the value of public spaces. His designs back in the 19th century kept a bit of the natural world within reach of American city dwellers. In places like Boston, Buffalo, Manhattan, Washington, Louisville, and Chicago. To help us appreciate Olmsted's influence on our cities, we're joined by historian Lawrence Cotton. Lawrence, thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Rick. Great to join you. For me, it is so fun to basically stumble onto something that I didn't realize I was appreciating, but I didn't know why I'm appreciating it so much. In public spaces, it's just something that I think many people don't realize how valuable they are. And this brilliant man who was so instrumental in that way, tell us just very briefly, what was it about Frederick Law Olmsted that distinguished his work? To Frederick Law Olmsted, parks were not just pleasure grounds, if I can use kind of an old-fashioned term. Uh, They were fundamental to humans' experience of nature, particularly in an urban environment. Up until a certain point in the 19th century, there really weren't public parks, uh, publicly financed parks in America. Hmm. In fact, in New York City, it was a a historic cemetery in Brooklyn Hmm. where people went to take the airs, if you will, on a Sunday afternoon. And it was only the well-off rich New Yorkers who Hmm. even did that at this bucolic Greenwood Cemetery until Olmsted designed and built uh, Central Park. You know, it's interesting because you go to London and you find all these lovely little parks, but you realize most of them were gated (laughs) gated communities or gated parks for the rich landowners that circled it. Indeed. Olmsted understood the value of what we call forced bathing and nature RX and just wellness in nature long before anybody put a name to those things. We've just got a few minutes, and what I'd like to do is just, this is a travel show, I'm just going to mention a park or a city, and I'd love for you just to, to kind of review with us why we can thank or, or celebrate the work of Frederick Law Olmsted for, for that city. And let's start with um, Central Park in New York City. It's Much talked about, the famous lungs of the city, of course. 1857 was when Olmsted began his work on it, although work already had, some work had already been conducted even before he was appointed to his role. The Greensward design is totally famous in 
landscape architecture circles and in park circles, a design carried out by Frederick Olmsted and his key collaborator at that point, British-born architect Calvert Vox. Mm-hmm. And it's a theatrical experience, a musical experience, a symphonic sequence of spaces to quote Central Park Conservancy founder Elizabeth Barlow Rogers, which has the pastoral elements of the sheep meadow, the famous sheep meadow, mm-hmm. and the ramble, the burning hotspot of uh, Central Park, which of course is the picturesque environment. And you move from one environment to the other multiple times over. There are other such spaces in that huge park. And it's all planned. It's nothing accidental. That was all part of the original vision. All planned, all designed by Olmsted nice. and Vox. Now take us now to the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. Now there, it isn't quite as... Obviously, the U.S. Capitol was being built before Olmsted came on the scene, and he was asked to improve the grounds, and he made some significant improvements to the grounds, particularly on the mall side of the Capitol, He built a little summer house that's still there today, by the way. But one of the key things is he switched the entrance. He switched the entrance, and Olmsted, Mr. Olmsted, created the Capitol Steps Ah. that are so significant in American political culture, are they not? And they are theatrical. They are indeed theatrical, and that is one of Mr. Olmsted's uh, additions and improvements to the entire edifice of the Capitol. Isn't that extraordinary? Amazing. How about, let's go to Niagara Falls. Well, you should look up pictures to see what Niagara Falls looked like before Olmsted got a hold of it. Uh, if <laughs> I, I can, love it. If I can put it rather uh, crudely, the city fathers, the city leaders of Buffalo, after Olmsted had worked on this masterful park system there, they said, oh, we have this degraded, industrialized uh, waterfall complex that's all been subdivided into a series of mill sites and there's only one small natural area of the waterfall that you have to pay. It's like an amusement park, and you have to pay what was called a commutation fee to walk up and over a little bridge to get into to even get a look at the natural waterfall. And they said, Mr. Olmsted, what can you do to help us here? Olmsted led the first national campaign for scenic preservation in the history of the United States called the Free Niagara Movement. And it resulted in unparalleled legislation by the state of New York to condemn the property, to remove all the industry, to acquire the land and to restore the waterfall as best as they could to a natural state and to create a brand Mm. new state park, the Mm. first state park in the nation, master planned by none other than Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Fox. And I'll just end with this for visitors who haven't been to uh, Niagara Falls in a long time. Go there today and go out to Goat Island Uh and the Three Sisters above the waterfall complex, all landscaped by Olmsted and Vox, and you will have a transformative, Ah. different Niagara Falls experience. Lawrence Cotton is a filmmaker from Portland, Oregon, who produced the PBS documentary special Frederick Law Olmsted, Designing America. Last year, Lawrence helped to celebrate the bicentennial of the man who's often called the father of landscape architecture. He's with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to take a closer look at some of the most beautiful urban parks, gardens, and public spaces that we continue to enjoy today. And they were all designed by Olmsted and his team. Hey, uh, Lawrence, if I'm a Bostonian, why would I care about Frederick Law Olmsted? Well, (laughs) uh, that's where he lived. The whole, he and his family members lived the entire latter part of their lives, including his sons and the Olmsted Brothers firm headquartered in South Brookline, Massachusetts. It also happens to be a wonderful national historic park, Rick in South Brookline, but it's also a stone's throw from the emerald necklace, Mm. a crescent 
of Olmsted Design Parks. It's a linear park in a crescent shape, if you will, of parks, large and small, and parkways mm. that wind around and enclose a major section of the city of Boston, approximately seven miles in length, from the Fens or Fenway all the way to today's Franklin Park and points in between, including notably Jamaica Pond and one of my favorite places, the Harvard Arnold Arboretum, which is just extraordinary. You know, Lawrence, if somebody wants to do something productive with their life, what a gratifying thing to be a landscape architect and to have a lasting impact on something that is so important. And he so strongly believed in democracy in the park, you know, the social value of dedicating public land, green spaces, so people can just recharge and so people can get together and connect. I know that he had a big impact on Buffalo. Talk about Olmsted in Buffalo. In Buffalo, that's the first integrated park system in the nation. Uh, Olmsted, and at this point, he was still working with Vox. And up to that point, individual parks had been designed, but not park systems. And here Mm. in Buffalo, an entire park system, large and small parks, all connected by parkways, not narrow green lanes, you know, narrow green strips in the middle of a busy roadway, but large linear parks uh, that uh, connected, like arteries and veins, all of these park-like environments. The whole idea here, the brilliant idea in Buffalo, is that to think of the city as being contained within a giant park or a system of parks so that anyone, no matter who you were, what your background is, that you could be within easy walking distance of a park-like environment and that the city of Buffalo would plan its growth around this system of parks. And it was a brilliant Brilliant Hmm. scenario that developed there in Buffalo in the 19th century. You know, Lawrence, I was just up in Bellingham helping produce a video for their local tourism board, and something that Bellingham in in Washington State is all excited about is that same thing, that every citizen would be within a short walk of a beautiful park. And uh, it's just sort of a a great way to contribute to the collective well-being of your community. Um, What did Olmsted do to contribute to the quality of life in Louisville? Same thing. It came a little later. Buffalo was first. Louisville, and by the way, Boston was also later. Mm -hmm. Boston was somewhat towards the end of his career. Uh, Louisville has an entire system of parks, and it's unheralded. Louisville, again, has an extraordinary collection of large, medium, and small Olmsted parks all throughout the city, also, once again, connected by parkways. Now, in Louisville, I think only two of the parkways are still there in any fashion, if I'm not mistaken. There's a couple of more parkways that are still in place in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. But again, gorgeous. And they are such, I got to be careful when I use the term amenity, but they are such beautiful amenities to the city of Louisville. Everyone depends on them. They've been there for a long time and they are just extraordinary. Uh, Cherokee is perhaps the most well-known in Louisville, but there are others. There's Iroquois, there's Seneca. They they all have the native names. You know, Lawrence, talking to you, uh, I'm impressed by the breadth, the impact of one hardworking landscape architect, Frederick Law Olmsted. And I was even thinking about in the Middle Ages, when it was a time of, of building great cathedrals, a few very prolific architects were just European-wide big shots, and they would be imported from here and there and there to leave their mark on the city with these great churches. And Olmsted did that in a way that is kind of a church in itself, creating sacred places where we can commune with nature. And it had a huge impact on our society. Larger than you can even imagine. And again, I commend you in your sensibility there uh, that no doubt to many, including me, Uh, Many of these Olmsted parks are church-like environments. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Olmsted himself, by the way, 
he considered a public park a public health institution. <laughs> but he not only recognized the, the physical health benefits, but the mental health and, I dare say, spiritual health benefits yes. of immersing oneself in this kind of natural environment when you're oppressed on all sides in an, a busy, frenetic urban Right. Uh, city. And our freneticism of our urban life today is probably more than what Olmsted was even could imagine, and therefore the value of his parks is greater than he could even hope. Lawrence Cotton, thank you so much for shining a light on the work of the father of American landscape architecture, Frederick Law Olmsted. Thanks a lot, Lawrence, and I feel like heading out to a park right now. Thank you, Rick, for the opportunity to continue my evangelism. Yeah, all right. Amen. Historian Lawrence Cotton tells us about the Olmsted family's design work on the University of Washington campus in Seattle, where they lined up an elegant fountain with a dramatic view of snow-capped Mount Rainier. That's in an extra to today's interview at ricksteves.com radio. They're anticipating a big jump in tourism to Egypt before long. We'll hear why in just a bit. But first, we get fresh ideas for hiking across Europe. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Cassandra Overby has long explored a dimension of Europe that I only recently discovered myself, the continent's long-distance trails. Each country in Europe has beloved and venerable long-distance trails, and Cassandra wrote a guide to these. It's called Explore Europe on Foot. She inspired me to hike around Mount Blanc a couple years ago, and last year she inspired me to take a one-week series of hikes lacing together historic mountain hotels in Switzerland's Bernice Overland in the shadow of the Jungfrau. She's been doing a lot of hiking lately and joins us right here in our studio to report on what's new on the great trails of Europe. Cassandra, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So you've been busy. I mean, I, when I write my guidebooks, I have to go back and visit all the hotels and restaurants in all these countries. And when you write your book, you have to do the hikes again, don't you? Oh my goodness. It's a lot of hiking. Basically a long hike every single day for about three months at a time. A long hike every single day for three months at a time. So you were over there for three months, and um, what countries were you hiking in? Everywhere from Spain to Croatia, Slovenia, France, did some Alps. So eight different countries, ten different destinations within those countries. What a beautiful thing. You must be in such great shape. You must be so tight with your gear. You must love your shoes and your sticks. Absolutely. Although it's amazing how quickly you wear through things when you're hiking that much. I bet. I can't imagine. But it's also probably amazing how good your body gets when you're doing it day after day, an eight-hour, six-hour hike every day. And what's your average altitude gain in a day? Ooh, I'd say around 1,500 feet. 1,500 feet. Yeah. 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 Especially, I mean, this past summer I was carrying my four-and-a-half-year-old, and so that added a whole different level of physical challenge, and I did really come back strong. I bet you did. You know, when I hiked around Mount Blanc, I was amazed at how many people had a baby on their back. Right. There's a lot of people hiking with their kids. There are. It's very popular in Europe to bring your kid with you. I think it's wonderful, and it's a really one way that people with kids can actually get out there. Yeah. You don't need to let having a kid keep you down, that's for sure. Right. What better way can you have quality time with the kids and surrounded by nature and getting in good shape and eating good food? Right. It's the perfect. You talk about cultural hiking. It's uh, part of the subtitle of your book, Complete Guide to Planning a Cultural Hiking Adventure. What do you mean by that? So this is not hiking for the sake of exercise. It's not about getting out there and getting a really good workout, although that is a really nice byproduct. 
So I actually look at hiking as a better way to travel. So it's a way to get into small towns where you can meet locals and where you can listen to local music, eat local food, and really discover local culture. You know, that's one thing I like about Europe is the way nature and culture kind of share the same crib. You know, they're in that together. Completely. They're so connected. You can feel like you're out in the middle of nowhere and then 10 minutes later be in a really beautiful medieval village. I was with you in in, uh, France starting the Tour de Mont Blanc hike when we were filming, and we walked up a a Roman road that was 2,000 years old. Those cobbles were laid 2,000 years ago by the Romans. It was a trading road up in the Alps. Right. And we came to that gorge with the old bridge. Mm Mm-hmm. And we visited the farmer who made the cheese. And we popped into that little church where all the hikers go. I mean, there's so much culture that overlays the hiking experience. And, of course, you're surrounded by dramatic nature, the Alps, the Pyrenees, whatever mountains you may be in. Right. It's astounding. And I think it really makes you think of hiking differently. And that's something that I found is really interesting, as I find a lot of people drawn to exploring Europe on foot, whereas in the U.S. they would not consider themselves to be hikers. I think that might be me. Yeah, because you fell in love with it, right? I love hiking in Europe, and, uh, you know, I like hiking in the States, but but there's some extra dimension, and it's that cultural hiking you're talking about. And the comfort. You cannot forget the comfort. And the cuisine. Right. I mean, you you know, food is great on the road. Food is great, period, if you know where to eat and you're going to eat well. But if you've been hiking all day... And if you're in high altitude and you're surrounded by people who are just as exuberant and healthy and positive and into it as you are, what better environment for enjoying the great food of one culture? Right. And you don't have to worry about how much you eat because you work (laughs) it all off plus more. Dessert, bring it on because I'm hiking every day. (laughs) Exactly. I was that way. I just take a little bite of dessert now because I don't need empty calories. But when I'm in the um, hiking mode... Calories are a good thing. Calories are your friend. Right. Now, a new focus you've got lately is home base hiking. I know you're working on a book about home base hiking. When we think of a venerable trail, a long-distance trail all across around Cornwall or all across uh, Scotland or England with the Hadrian's Wall or all along the medieval border of uh, Wales, Ofa's Dyke, you're going someplace, you know. But uh, home base hiking is a different kind of hiking. Right. What, what, what appeals to you about that? So in Europe, they actually call it star hiking because you start from like a middle location and you bump out from there, which I think makes so much sense. But star hiking is really wonderful when you're not in a good position to be able to go village to village or hut to hut. Mm -hmm. Like me, when I became a parent, it became very hard to do that kind of travel. And there are a lot of people who are in the same position. They don't want to pack up every day. They don't want to unpack every day and be in a new spot. But there are a lot of other really amazing things about home-based hiking, too, and that is it gives you a lot of flexibility. So if the weather turns, it's so easy to swap days and to be able to make the rainy days museum days or things like that and to make the really beautiful days hiking days. And if you want to hike more, you can add in more day hikes. And, you know, you can stay in the same accommodations and really get to know your village. So I'm kind of famous for falling in love with a certain restaurant. And then I will go back to that restaurant every night. You know, there's a lot to be said for that. The right. wait staff knows you. You know the menu. It's exactly. Just, it's comforting. It's like a, a coming home and putting on your favorite slippers. It is. This is Travel with Rick Steves, by the way. We're talking with Cassandra Overby. She's a writer and travel enthusiast who wants to revolutionize travel one hike at a time. 
Her book is called Explore Europe on Foot, and it gives travelers an alternative way to experience Europe through cultural hiking experiences. Cassandra provides hiking route guides and uh, all sorts of tips for places like France and Germany on her website, and her website is exploreonfoot.com, and Explore on Foot is divided by hyphens. So, Cassandra, let's just kind of bounce around Europe a little bit and talk about some great hikes. You were traveling in all these different countries. You and I have been talking about in Switzerland, in the Alps, the Tour de Mont Blanc, that's a 100-mile, 10-day hike around Mont Blanc. I was just talking about hiking in the Berner Oberland uh, around Interlaken using the little village of Gimmelwald as my springboard. I'm dreaming about the Dolomites. That's the Italian Alps, and I know you were just there. Tell me about the Dolomites. So the Dolomites are thus named because the rocks there are made of dolomite. And they're a totally different kind of mountain that you're going to find in other parts of the Alps. They're not rounded. They're not gentle looking. They're spires, steep, sharp, jaggedy spires. Stark. Right. And they're beautiful and inspiring. And when you're in the Dolomites, you get to get up on these high alpine paths and walk around those mountains and you can see the pastures, the Alps. This is one thing I like is the cow culture that mixes in with the high Alp culture. And you've got the highest alpine meadow in Europe there, the Alpi di Susi. And that's got all sorts of farms dotting this lush uh, grasses. And uh, it's sort of a, a cool mix. And when you see farms, you know there's little cafes, there's homemade yogurt, there's cheese. There's this culture that you can, you can nip in and out of as you hike. Right. Something that I don't think a lot of people understand is alpine culture is a thing. So a lot of times being in the Alps unites people a lot more than being French or being Italian or being Swiss. And so you'll see a lot of those similarities in all of the Alps. But alpine culture is this really enchanting thing. It makes you feel like you've really gone back to a simpler time of life. When I think about it, I'm just thinking back on some of my experiences lately. You come upon a farm And in the summertime, the farmer realizes, hey, I could make a little money selling drinks and light lunches and and, uh, fresh pie, you know. And you find these just dream-come-true little oasises of food and drink as you're hiking in the middle of nowhere. You come around the corner, and there's a happy conviviality where everybody's, you know, putting down their sticks in their bags, and they're just kicking back and having a beer halfway through a day of hiking. Right. Or the thing that I love, too, is that everything is sold on the honor system. Yeah. You'll have a bunch of cheese just in a refrigerator and a little coin slot. There you and go. they trust that you really will leave your coin. And I was walking by a, a farm, an alp, and uh, the young woman was there from the village, and she was up there for three months or something with the cows. And I just dropped in, and she was seemed a little lonely, and she was happy to talk. And she was practicing her English, and I got to learn what it was like for her to be all alone up there with her herd. Right. It's something that we think of as being from the olden times. But the truth is, like, this culture still survives, and it still is a way of life. And it's really cool to be able to be a part of it. By the way, I saw on my map that this was a little farm, and I had heard that there was a woman there that was tending the goats and the cows and so on. And it was a side trip. So we stowed our bag just behind a bush outside of the main trail because we didn't want to hike all the way up the steep part <laughs> with our bag on us. Right. Do you ever do that? I mean, I felt very safe leaving 
everything I had just behind a bush as I left the big trail to take that side trip. Oh, yeah. I always feel much safer, even solo hiking in Europe, than I would ever in the U.S. And no COVID concerns at all up in the altitude. No. I mean, you're outside. Everybody's breathing the fresh air. You're separated from other groups of hikers. Hey, let's talk about Britain because the English love to hike, don't they? There's there's just it's sort of in, woven into their, their DNA. In fact, they have a, what is it, the, the Ramblers Club, I think, mm-hmm. in England, right? And right. Uh, they actually enforce the land, the law of the land that no landlord can put a fence to keep you from walking across. If a trail goes across, they've got to provide a little gate. There's all sorts of cool gates you encounter when you're hiking in England. Right. It's a game changer because it opens up so much land that otherwise you would never make it into. So these nice pastures and you're allowed to wild camp to sleep outside as well. And one thing I learned, I can think about it in Italy on the Riviera. I can think about it in Switzerland, hiking out from Gimmelwald. And I can certainly think about it in the Cotswold villages in England. A lot of us are busy sightseeing. You don't need a lot of time to have a memorable hike. If you've got two hours before dinner, you can have a great hike. Oh, completely. You can walk somewhere for two hours and take a taxi back to your little town in the Cotswolds. And it would be a, one of the highlights of your experience. Right. You'd, you'd get to see all those towns from the back hiking on the trails rather than driving on the big noisy road. Right. You can see so many sites that otherwise you would just miss. That's an intimate approach. Talk to me about your favorite hiking experiences in England. Ooh, I am a big fan of the Lake District, because if there's anything that the British love like walking, it's tea. And it's the perfect opportunity to pair the two, because it's this drizzly, rainy spot a lot of times, but it's really something that you do want to walk in. You put on your rain jacket, you go out into the fields and the meadows, and you climb these hills, and then you come back and you're slightly chilly, and you get to sit inside by the fire and drink tea and have little cakes, and it makes makes you actually really enjoy hiking in the rain. Two things come to me when you say that because I know exactly what you're describing. I wear glasses, and when I step in, my glasses are filled with condensation right away. It's so cozy, you know, that that feeling. So you take the glasses off, and then you sit down, and and hikers are there with their dogs. Dogs are welcome. Mm -hmm. And you have your beautiful tea and maybe some scones. And you got to remember that these little villages are kind of speckling the countryside, and they seem to be placed perfectly if you're taking a hike. Whenever you really need a little break, you've got a pub, you've got a little charming cafe, and you've got a chance to settle into the culture. Right. And it's a nice spot because you could go village to village, or it's also a really nice place to just stay and home base, and you can do so many day hikes. What's your favorite home base for hiking in the Cumbrian Lake District? Ooh, I would say I stayed in this one little place. It wasn't actually a village. It was right outside a village, and it was where William Wordsworth lived, Ah, a little inn, and it was up in the hills. And you walked from there? Yeah, and I walked from there. Yeah, because he was so inspired by the nature that's all around you to write his poetry. Right. I can imagine being a poet in the Lakes District of England. Oh, completely, and staying in a place where he stayed so many years ago, and it just had the ambience, and you could just soak it in. You know, the English love to make little sort of homemade guidebooks, and you can go to the little shops in any of these corners in Britain and pick up guides that are charming little intimate uh, collections of walks and things you'll see along the way. So don't miss out on that if you're visiting in England. The Cotswold Villages, wonderful walks, the Cumbrian Lake District up in the north. My favorite home base is Keswick up in the north of the Mm -hmm. Lakes District. Tell me some of your favorite summits where you you get to the top and you get a 360-degree view. Ooh, are you talking in the, the Lake same. District? Anywhere. Or just anywhere? Well, first of all, Lake District. What's your favorite summit of oh. I know the easy one, Cat Bells. Do you know Cat Bells? Yeah. Outside of so, Keswick. 
Right. That one's beautiful. But my favorite aren't the summits there. My favorite are actually going around the little lakes. The little lakes. Oh, and, and disappearing. you have a trail all around the lake. Right. But- Buttermere has a nice trail yeah. around it. And it's in Seattle, we have Green Lake, and it's a nice three-mile walk, you know. But you find a little lake, invariably, there'll be a trail all the way around it, 360 degrees. Yeah. So that's actually what I really like to do when I'm there. But if you're Nice talking- thing about that, no altitude gain. Oh, exactly. Right. <laughs> I like I like towpaths also <laughs> along rivers. Gentle altitude gain if you go uphill on a river. Right. We're exploring long-distance hiking options as a fun way to get up close with Europe right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Cassandra Overby provides details for 15 long-distance trails in Europe, plus a number of shorter routes in her book called Explore Europe on Foot. Her website is explore-on-foot.com. And Cassandra, we've just got a minute left, and I tell you, I was so inspired by the practical information that's in your book, and I employ it when I'm walking anywhere. Can you take the last minute or so of this interview and just review the most important practical tips when we're going to be hiking a little bit beyond our our normal uh, comfort zone? Sure. I think my very biggest tip is be encouraged. I know there are a lot of people who don't think of themselves as traditional hikers, but the best thing about hiking in Europe is that you can really find your own pace. There is a trail for everybody. Trails where you get to a village every two miles, trails that are flat, trails that are incredibly steep if that's what you want. Another tip that I have is make sure that as soon as anything hurts, as soon as anything feels uncomfortable, don't try to tough it out. That's how you get an injury or blister. Just stop and address it. The moment that you address a blister or a backpack strap that rubs is your way of guaranteeing, actually, that you can keep hiking and keep enjoying your trip. And that was a concern of mine when I did Mount Blanc because I knew I had to stay healthy for a week of serious hikes every day, a long hike. Right. And I didn't want to get some little problem become a big problem because I had no time to recover. I had to be ahead of the game. Yes, exactly. Another thing that you really want to do is walk in advance and test out everything. So the walking isn't just good for building you up physically, but it shows you where you have weak points in your gear. It'll let you test out your shoes and make sure they're broken in. You can test out your backpack and make sure it really is comfortable and it fits everything you want. You can wear your pants and make sure that they don't irk you in a weird way. Walking in advance as much as you can is probably the best thing you can do. And that probably gets your ankles and your knees in better shape. I'm never going to be a a champion's kind of physical specimen, but I just don't want to have a silly little tweak in my knee or pull something in my ankle. you got to use those joints. Right, completely. And, you know, the thing that I find, too, is people who go out and start doing all of these hikes, it does change them, and it changes how they like to spend time. And they end up doing more and more of these hikes. The most important tip I got from you, I got to say, was stretch. Mm. Because I'm in my 60s, and I'm, I hiked up to base camp on Mount Rainier. I literally could not get out of the hotel bed the next morning. I was a cripple because I didn't stretch. <laughs> right. I did much harder hikes in Mont Blanc than I did to base camp on Mount Rainier for six or seven days in a row. Never had a single problem because mm-hmm. I stretched. I stretched like a madman before, during, and after. Right. What I like to recommend, too, is if you can't decide between having your beer or stretching, take your beer outside and stretch while you drink your beer. There you go. Words (laughs) of wisdom from somebody who knows how to mix the great outdoors with culture. And that's the subtitle of Cassandra's book, Explore on Foot, Your Complete Guide to Planning a Cultural Hiking Adventure. Cassandra, always great to have you here. Thanks and, and happy hiking. Thank you so much.
Find out how Egypt is anticipating a big boost to its tourism industry soon. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Egypt has so many cultural and archaeological riches that its potential for tourism is huge. Yet, in recent years, it seems there's always something that happens that scares international visitors away. Still, for those who venture to Egypt, like I did not long ago you can expect to find an amazing travel experience as you explore ancient and modern-day Egypt. For a look at what's new in Egyptian tourism this year, we're joined by tour operator Tarek Musa from Cairo. Tarek, welcome. Thank you, Rick. So nice to be with you. You know, most Americans know about the three great pyramids at Giza. We have an image of that. It's the iconic image for traveling to Egypt. I will never forget being with you and hiking to the center of the biggest pyramid, the Pyramid of Khufu. It was the tallest man-made structure anywhere in the world for over 4,000 years. And today we can go there and just marvel about, I mean, what, 10,000 laborers were hard at work on this for 20 years, dragging 2 million of these huge stones up those ramps. And today we could experience that as tourism. Isn't it exciting for you as a tour organizer to be able to help visiting Americans and people from around the world make a pilgrimage to these ancient sites. It's amazing, Rick. I have been to the pyramids more than hundreds and hundreds of times. And believe me, each time I go and look at it, it's like the first time I look at it, how on earth they built it, how huge it is. It's totally different, as you have seen yourself, from whatever you see on TVs or programs. It's huge when you stand in front of it with great respect. And each time I go in there, especially when we do tours sometimes at dawn time from 5 to 7 a.m., and nobody in there, the spiritual side of it, you feel it. You do. There is a spiritual side to it, and I don't even know what the spiritual side is, but when you're in the middle of that structure and you think of how much work went into it, and it essentially is the mausoleum, the tomb of the the pharaoh, the most powerful guy in Egypt from 2,500 years yep. before Christ. Um, Tarek, do you have any childhood memories of exploring the pyramids and climbing on them and so on? Yes. When I was in grade six at school, they took us for a school excursion to the pyramids. And when I went in there, it became too emotional. Like I just fell in love with the, the whole idea. And that was part of getting into the tourism industry. Like since grade six, I felt... This is amazing. And I saw these tourists in there from America, France, different languages. And I like language at that time. I would never forget this experience. It's like it's happening yesterday. I didn't realize that's the beginning of your interest in tourism because you are so passionate about showing off Egypt to visitors from far away. And, and as a child, you got that idea that this is something everybody should celebrate. Tarek, I imagine when you were a boy, and that was a few years ago, um, you could kind of crawl around the pyramids, and it wasn't so formal. But now it's not allowed to climb on the pyramids, is it? No, it's illegal now. It is definitely illegal. Even before then, it was illegal, but they, they were easy. The poli- tourist police there were easy long, long, long time ago. But now it's totally prohibitive. But it's an amazing experience. I've been almost at the top. I'm not inviting uh, American tourists. Do not do that. It's, it's, Ill- no, 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 <laughs> it's you can't illegal. No, 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 you can't do that. But it's an amazing experience. 
you look at Cairo, you see all Cairo as a like it's a huge city, but you see it from the top of the near the top of the pyramids as a small place, and it's amazing experience. Seriously, yeah. There's so much wonder there, and I, I remember how hard you worked with our TV crew to make sure we were there at the right time of day, you know, in the, in the end of the day when mm-hmm. the sun is low and the colors are warm, the camels are going home, and uh, and, and the police <laughs> yes, are coming after right. us and telling us it's time to get out of here now. <laughs> when we stayed after 5 p.m., right, that's right, they're coming after us, and uh, I have to calm them down, we're leaving, we're leaving, you know. Well, we thanks to your help, we made a beautiful hour of uh, television for public television, and you can see it on Passport if you have Passport, uh, the app on public television, if you want to see an hour of Egypt. But the big news, and what I wanted to talk to you about, Tarek, today, is the Grand Egyptian Museum. All of our lives, we've had the Museum of uh, Antiquities in Cairo, which is just an amazing old-school museum with all the great, you know, the King Tut treasures and so on. But uh, when we were there a few years ago, you took us to the Grand Egyptian Museum in Giza, out by the pyramids, and it was still under construction. But... I think you could fit 10 of the uh, Egyptian Museum of Antiquities into this new museum. I understand uh, the country's spending a billion dollars to build this thing. And what's the, status of the, yeah. what, what's the status of that museum now? Okay, uh, all I can tell you, it's, it's almost ready. It's 99% ready. Just our president wants to make a huge celebration and opening of it. And it's almost ready, and it's amazing. It's the largest single museum for one only one civilization, the Egyptian civilization, the largest museum in the world for this. So it's going to be huge. And and what do people in Egypt think about this? Is this an, a waste of money to them, or is this a celebration of your culture and your heritage? No, it's a huge celebration of our culture and heritage because it's showing case all artifacts in one single place right. with views at the Grand Egyptian Museum of the Pyramids. And I believe strongly it's a money well spent. They actually making no mistakes in the way they're presenting things in a modern way, like the Louvre, the big museum around the world. They took experience from all of this, and uh, it's going to be amazing the way they are doing it, really. So up until now, the pyramids were one of the rare, great ancient sites where there was not a museum on the site. You would see the big museum on Terrier Square in Cairo, and then you would drive out to the edge of town and see the pyramids at Giza. And they're gonna, are they taking all of the artifacts and the treasures out of the old museum in the center of the city and moving them out to the pyramids? Uh, the Tutankhamun old gold stuff, they're taking to the Grand Egyptian Museum. And the old Egyptian museum is going to be there as it is with lots of uh, uh, artifacts in there. But the artifacts that have been in storage for many years are going in full display now in the new uh, Grand Egyptian Museum. Over 29,000 pieces, they're going to be showcased to the whole world now. It's a great opportunity to show the Egyptian history. And it's going to be the two museums are going to be open. And actually... While people are spending now two, three hours at the current Egyptian museum, I think with the new one, there's no way they're going to cover it in in a week. But we're going to pick that, show them the highlights. Yeah. So when you do go to Cairo, now uh, you'll go out to Giza and your visit will be two parts. It'll be an entire day, I would imagine. You'll do the Sphinx and you'll do the pyramids and you'll climb to the middle like we did. You'll wrestle with the camel men to see if you can take a ride without going broke and then you will go to the big museum, this Grand Egyptian Museum. 
Tarek Musa operates a tour company in Cairo that specializes in tour packages to the Middle East and Morocco. He was the guide I relied on in Cairo and Alexandria when I filmed the Rick Steves Egypt TV special a few years ago. And by the way, that special is streaming now at ricksteves.com. Tarek's updating us on life in Egypt this year as a grand new museum is expected to open soon at Giza. It promises to become a focal point for displaying the artifacts of Egyptian civilization and culture under one climate-controlled roof. Tarek's tour company's website is egyptandbeyondtravel.com. So, you've been my guide in Egypt for a long time, and I know you've been organizing tours of your beloved Egypt. Tourism really is important for Egypt, isn't it? Tell us the importance of tourism in your country. Tourism, uh, it's actually the most important revenue of foreign currency in Egypt. Uh, before it used to be the Suez Canal. Now it's tourism is number one. This is why the government are they trying to make it easy to come to Egypt, build new roads. It's amazing that we have new roads um, in Egypt in the last three, four years. Uh, they're building new hotels in uh, the downtown Cairo. So Egypt knows the importance of tourism and almost 20 million people in Egypt out of 104 million benefit from tourism. So it, you would say about 20% of the Egyptian population make a living of tourism. So it is so important for the Egyptian economy. Now, how is the economy in Egypt lately and, and what's the political environment Okay, the economy we have been in the last year struggling because of, you know, the, the worldwide situation. The inflation is really quite high. Life is getting expensive for so many people. But it's, it's really hard these days with everything going up in, in cost and the income like, hasn't increased much. Mm-hmm. But the government keep trying hard. The political situation, it's steady. Like, of course, there is always improvement to make it better. But at the moment, the economic situation isn't the best. But hopefully, in the next year or so, things get better. But part of it, because of the, the current war between you know Russia and Ukraine, is affecting us because Egypt is the largest importer of wheat mm. in the world. Mm-hmm. And we are struggling at the moment because its prices have gone up. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize the impact of the Ukrainian uh, tragedy on just the cost of, of basic food, grain, you know, wheat in, in the developing world and places like Egypt where you have 100 million people to feed. And review the challenges, Tarek, that Egypt has had over the last 10 or 20 years because I, I think it's the only country I know where when there have been terrorists, they've actually targeted tourists because they know that's an Achilles heel for the Egyptian economy. We struggled. Egypt struggled really with, uh, with terrorism, but the Egypt police and military worked and things got a lot better. In 2011, we had a revolution, and that was worse the the after-facts of this about the Egyptian economy after the revolution stopped tourists coming for quite some time. Then we had Muslim Brotherhood who ruled Egypt from 2012 to 2013. It was, it was black. It was, Egypt was blacked out and it was terrible. You visited Egypt at that time and I told you maybe next time when you come, I might not be here, I might be here. Gladly when you came back, I was here in Egypt because the Muslim Brotherhood ruling was gone. And things start to get better after 2013, 14. And tourists are coming more, people trusting and uh, visiting Egypt, and it is much safer. 
And I can tell you now, Egypt at the moment is one of the safest countries in the world. Having said that, anything can happen. Any terrorist attack can happen anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. But Egyptian government is not taking a chance. There is a department in the police force called tourist police. You know, when you go to the hotel, there are checkpoints. There are checkpoints in downtown or around the cities. So the government are actually spending millions of dollars for the protection of the tourists and Egyptian people. Well, I, I know that when we go to the great sites, when you go out to the tombs in Luxor, when you go out to the pyramids and so on, you'll see military police, it seems like, with machine guns protecting the visitors um, just on guard. Uh, I also know when yeah. a, a tour bus goes out, the police actually know when a, a tour bus filled with foreigners is driving around and, and they track that so that they can keep an eye on the foreigners from a safety point of view. Is that still the case? It is still the case, especially Americans, tourists are very lucky for like, tourist buses. So that's mainly for uh, American tourists mm-hmm. there for their protection and at their hotels as well. Tarek, is there still um, an element of angry fundamentalists uh, who were defeated after the revolution was changed? Is, is that still a challenge for the government that they have to kind of finesse? Look, Craig, this will always be a challenge for any government in Egypt because they, this Muslim Brotherhood and fanatics, they never get, give up. Mm-hmm. But the current government is making no mistakes for putting any one of these people who would be a threat to the Egyptian mm-hmm. safety or society or tourists, they would put them, they will go to jail. So, But yeah. there will always be a threat from them because they never give up. You know, what I say just for Americans who are concerned about their safety is Egypt is one place I love to travel, but I would recommend spending the extra money to stay in an international class hotel, kind of one of those hotels where the diplomats would stay. It comes with great security. And then if you can afford it, hire a company that has a guide that has a car and they come and get you at the hotel and they take you out and, they, and then there you can melt into Cairo and you can do your adventuring, but you have that little refuge to go back to. Now that's very expensive, but it's no more expensive than a normal travel expense if you're going to London. So I would say Egypt may be a cheap country in general, but if you want to be really safe, spend what you would spend on a normal trip in London in Egypt to stay in one of these international class hotels with a guide in a car. Does that make sense to you, Tarek? You're absolutely right, Rick. It's worth every penny you spend in Mm. there because you will feel like it's the same standard at a hotel in USA. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're joined by Tarek Musa. He's on the line with us from Cairo. Tarek runs and owns a tour company called Egypt and Beyond. The website is egyptandbeyondtravel.com. And Tarek lives in Cairo with his wife, Heba, and their three daughters. And with his help, we're getting up to date on tourism in Egypt. Another issue that's been in the news lately is Egypt is not very friendly to gay travelers, and women can often be harassed. What is your advice for gay travelers and women, and uh, what's your take on that? Okay, for for women, it's completely safe for women to travel, and women can walk at 3 a.m. in the morning in the middle of the streets in Cairo, and she'll be absolutely safe for this. So that's not true for them. Like, there are some... Some people would harass Egyptian women, but foreign women, tourists, they they don't go to the local places in Cairo that I would not go to. They will be in downtown by the pyramids, and that's completely safe for them. For gay travelers in in Egypt or Cairo, we we get lots of, for our company, we get lots of gay travelers, and we we do what they want in the hotel, uh, questions, the requirements at hotel, 
but we keep low profile. We don't we don't tell them don't go in public and offend people by you know like things like this. Even with with a couple like a husband and wife kiss in the middle of the street, people will just look at them. That's unusual for all cultures. Yeah. So if there is gay for gay travelers, women travelers, they respect the local culture. They are welcome, and we get we get groups of actually gay and lesbian tours. It's, uh, we have guides work with them. It's all fine. So the reality is, in Egyptian culture, by our standards, women and gay people are not um, given the same equality and respect in public that we would expect in, in our society. But being a gay or a woman traveler going to Egypt, if you just kind of recognize that in public you've got to have discretion, you're going to be okay, and you can uh, be yourself at the hotel. But when you're on the street... Women should dress um, modestly, and public displays of affection, even between heterosexual couples, are just, it's just not part of the culture in Egypt. Tour operator Tarek Musa is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves from his home in Cairo. He explains the role that private social clubs play in Egyptian society for recreation, connecting with one another, and even to help matchmakers find good prospects for their daughters and sons. Tarek tells us more in an extra to today's interview at ricksteves.com slash radio. Hey, Tarek, it's so great to talk to you. We're out of time. I just want to thank you very much. And, you know, I've seen all the, the basic things in Egypt that the tourists would likely be seeing. When I come next time, what's a different attraction, a different experience that you would like me to have? Definitely the Grand Egyptian Museum. That goes without say. Secondly, when you were here, the, the ancient... Egyptian Civilization Museum near Old Cairo. It's an amazing museum for the mummies, and it's amazing. You've got to see that. Huh. What is the name of that? The Ancient Civilization Museum. The Ancient Civilization Museum. And if I was going to venture with you away from the Nile uh, to see something else in Egypt, what would that be? Uh, Siwa Oasis. That is in the middle of the desert. It's a bit away from Cairo, and it is so nice in there and so calming it's amazing experience but it's uh, it's a bit of drive out of Cairo about 700 kilometers away from Cairo in the middle of nowhere wow. Siwa Oasis with lots of dates and palm trees 400 miles and you come upon an oasis wow Tarek I'm so excited I got to get back to Cairo thank you for joining us I just hope and pray that Egypt has a good stable uh, environment so that you can continue to uh, share the wonders of your culture and civilization with those who venture down to beautiful Egypt. Best wishes, Tarek. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Rick. Thank you so much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kazimer Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Find out more about our guests, search our archives, and listen again whenever you like at ricksteves.com slash radio. Join us again next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves Classroom Europe is a fast, free, and fun video archive. It's designed for teachers, travelers, and students. It gives you immediate access to some 500 short video clips from the Rick Steves Europe TV show library. Clips cover European history, art, culture, food, and geography. Google Classroom Europe or visit ricksteves.com to watch clips and create your own playlist. Teachers love it. Students do, too.